This podcast is brought to you by Dr. Lance Secretan, the author of a new book entitled The Bellwether Effect. Please listen to Greg's interview with Dr. Secretan on podcast number 678. One in two employees are unhappy with their job, and two-thirds of employees are disengaged at work. In this podcast, Dr. Secretan explains what is contributing to these alarming statistics and what can be done to reduce and eliminate them. In The Bellwether Effect, Dr. Secretan proposes a theory that explains how and why leaders are attracted to and seduced by trendy ideas and the process by which these ideas then become mainstream. Greg's interview with Dr. Lance Secretan is engaging, informative, and hopeful for the future of employees, leaders, and the corporations that employ them. Please listen to podcast number 678 with Dr. Lance Secretan on his new book, The Bellwether Effect. For more information, please visit www.secretan, that's spelled S-E-C-R-E-T-A-N dot com backslash The Bellwether Effect. And thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Chip, as I do every time I come on this show, and we're almost at 700 podcasts now, I wow. thank the listeners that are out there from around the world that have continued to listen, support, write, put in blog entries. It, you're wonderful. You guys are great. And today we have a returning guest and his name is Chip Connolly. And for those of you who read my book, he also did an endorsement of Hacking the Gap. Uh, Chip has a new book out and this new book is called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And Chip, good day to you. How are you doing? Thanks, Greg. I'm great. I'm uh, enthused to be with you again. Well, it's good to have you back again. We don't talk that often, but when we do, it's meaningful. So um, I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you. Uh, Chip is a best-selling author, hospitality entrepreneur, strategic advisor to Airbnb. At the age of 26, he founded Juada V Hospitality, and turn it into the second largest boutique hotel brand in the world. And then after selling his company in 2010, he joined Airbnb as the head of global hospitality and strategy. He helped run it into the world's largest hospitality brand, or I should say turn it. Um, Chip has received Hospitality Honor Awards, the Pioneer Award, and he serves on the boards of Burning Man Project, an Esalon, and he's the author of Peak and the New York Times bestseller, Emotional Equations, and we will put a link to Emotional Equations. We did an interview with him uh, on that. He lives in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and holds a BA and an MA from Stanford University. Well, Chip, we're, we're all aging. You are aging very nicely by your picture and your website. So <laughs> thank you. There you go. <laughs> And, you know, I'm going to start this interview off with this. You know, while the book is about your mentorship um, with the founders of Airbnb, it's as much about elders finding their place in society. Um, why do you believe that the aging population has a role in mentoring younger entrepreneurs or business startups? And 
what do they offer that's missing from the culture of a company like Airbnb or Google or any of those companies that are primarily tech companies? So, well, first of all, it's great to be with you, Greg. Um, I, so my experience at Airbnb was really quite un, unusual in the sense that uh, I was lucky enough that the three founders of Airbnb had read one of my earlier books, Peak, and they liked it a lot. They were a small, te- fast-growing tech startup, and they knew they needed to become a hospitality company when they grew up. So, I, you know, in the unusual situation, they came looking for me at age when I was 52 years old. That is unusual. Most people at 52 actually have the opposite problem, which is they're, they're feeling invisible and irre- irrelevant, especially in the tech world. Um, what became clear to me quickly is that while they had hired me uh, to come on and be the mentor in-house for Brian Chesky, the, the founder, um, and to bring my hospitality knowledge, much of my hospitality fact knowledge, like how many rooms does a maid clean in an eight-hour shift, didn't really matter in the home-sharing world of Airbnb. And what was what I really brought to the table was a combination of process knowledge, as in um, how is it that we get things done in this organization based upon both understanding the underlying motivations of everybody at the table here, which requires a little bit of emotional intelligence, which grows with time as you age. And then secondly, having the organizational savvy to just know how do you operate a, um, a company full of teams. Uh, and in a cl- very collaborative way. And a lot of times people get very focused on young people as the savior for our companies or our organizations because we're increasingly reliant on digital intelligence or what I call DQ. But the fact is that you know DQ or, or the specifics about understanding the digital world, whether you're an engineer or a designer or just a, you know, somebody who understands the, the tech world, uh, means it's a very important valuable skill, but it is missing a whole bunch of other skills, which frankly, a lot of people who are older have built over time. And many of those skills revolve around emotional intelligence, um, whether that shows up as leadership um, skills or it shows up in intuitive understanding of other humans. Um, These are the kinds of things that many young companies full of teams that are frankly combative more than they are collaborative um, could use more of. Most certainly. And, you know, we find that is there kind of a cross-generational situation now. We've got people in their 50s and 60s working in organizations and people in their 20s and everybody in the organization attempting to learn from one another and collaborate. You know, you cite uh, Dr. Laura Christensen, founding director of Mm -hmm. Stanford Center on Longevity, that people... Um, that people prioritize the present when time horizons are constrained. I love that statement, actually, because I see myself reflecting on that when I write in my journal. Because what is the significant difference that we're going to make as individuals getting into our 60s and 70s? I think that it is so true. Um, What have you done to prioritize your present? And why do you believe Mm. that this perspective perspective is so important for your mentees to learn. Now, it's not just something we learn, but the mentees at Airbnb. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I am going to reveal something that came up recently for me as I, on the second day of my book tour about a month ago, um, the day before I'm going to give a TED speech at, at TED headquarters, and I'm at a TED speaker's dinner that night, I got a call from my doctor saying, Chip, you, out, you know, I'm sorry, but um, we 
didn't think that all the work we'd done on biopsies and MRIs were going to lead to something. We, we thought there was a 20% chance there might be a problem, but in fact, you have intermediate stage prostate cancer. So I just found that out a few weeks ago. And that, that process of whether it's having a health diagnosis that um, is concerning and actually puts, puts your life or health at risk, or whether it's um, being later in life and, and uh, realizing, okay, you know, what is it that I still want to do? And people start talking about bucket lists and things like that. Um, there's a, I think there's an awful lot of evidence that when we are living in a state of immediacy, and, and, a, and a, a, I'm, I'm on the board of Burning Man, at the Burning Man uh, Festival every year, uh, immediacy is one of the 10 principles of Burning Man, the idea that people are in the moment when they're there, um, so there's all kinds of way, reasons that a person could actually move into the moment as opposed to being focused on the past or the future more. But what's really clear is when you're in the moment, whether you're meditating or you're just being with someone, um, you are able to appreciate the life, just the life force that's inside of you so much more readily than when you're fixated in your brain. Purely, um, and the, 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 you know, often when we're thinking about the past or the future, it's fixated in our brain. And um, so I, I, I know that for me, when I'm act in a moment of appreciating the moment for what it is, I seem to actually notice my breath more. And when I notice my breath more, somehow everything slows down a little bit, and I have an ability to appreciate just this moment right now, and maybe just that moment right then. And um, and that process of stringing together a bunch of beautiful moments um, is what <clears throat> is what we I think learn as we get older, um, and uh, you know realize that these moments make a lifetime. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, I think it's you know I think it's very wise. Dr. Laura Carstensen is a good friend, and and she's um, done a lot of great studies that show that you know when people are more focused on the present moment, um, whatever it is that's taken them there. Uh, they usually act, are able to move to a happier place. Well, and I think uh, everybody from, you know, I, I'm sitting here right now and I remember interviewing Ram Das not that long ago, mm. but the sign mm. on my desk every morning that I come and stand at my computer is be here now. And mm -hmm. it's, it really it is shows what a hippie, dragon shows what a hippie you are. <laughs> it's, that's right. It does show a little bit of what a hippie I am. But actually, <laughs> you know, that sign came from Send Delaney, which was an organizational development company. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, what's, what's really so fascinating is that to slow down at the speed we move at today, I don't think it's my age. I really believe that society has chosen to move at a much more rapid pace because technology has precipitated that. And I really appreciate the quote from Gandhi in your book. There is more to life than simply increasing its speed. Maybe the modern elder can be the designated driver in a world where the accelerator pedal is pushed to the limit. How do you help the mentees, no matter who they are, that come to Chip Conley? slow down and take notice of the important milestones in their life. I think today, you know, this is a personal commentary, but people reach these milestones and because they're moving at such a fast pace, they're just looking for the next one. It's almost like 
does the conductor make the music for you to listen to the note or the silence in between the note? Mm. And mm. I think it's so important for people to, to pause and understand the silence between the notes. What do you do to help people get there? Well, one thing that's been interesting, you know, in, working in a company where I'm now almost 58 and average age is about 26 or 27, so I'm substantially older. I'm two generations older than the average person here. And, and frankly, as one person said to me, my, my grandfather's almost as old as you, or I was actually a little bit older than you. So I was like, oh, really? Okay, I'm grandpa. But the thing that actually people have said to me on many occasions, and it's part of the reason that over 100 people here in the company in the last five and a half years have asked me to mentor them, um, and usually, frankly, we're mentoring each other more than anything, uh, is they've said, listen, I really appreciate your presence. And so I often ask, what does that mean? Um, what does it mean when you say that I'm, I, I feel like I have presence? And it's like you're not just listening to me, you're listening for me. For, like you're listening not just to my story, but for my story. And it's, you're not distracted. It's the opposite of absence. And we live in a culture where there's a lot of absence and the absence often happens because of our devices, of our smartphones. And so our smartphone, for example, is something that helps us you know, do many things at once. And the idea of multitasking was going on way before the smartphone came along, but smartphones just sort of took it you know, 10 steps further. So we can be extremely productive, but not all that present. And... Um, so one of the things that's been beautiful is to have people ask me, so how are you so present? Um, and I used to I say that to them, have you ever heard on the, you know, a game show, you must be present to win? <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. must be present to win is a, a little bit, of, to my mind, of like what defines uh, happiness and success. Is to be actually present means you can, you can feel... You're not just sort of listening. You're not sort of distracted, like watching the TV while you're doing three other things. You're literally putting your phone down. You're giving someone your complete attention. And you're allowing your intuition and your mirror neurons, the kinds of things that, frankly, you don't think about too consciously, to actually give you indications uh, and things to know. And sometimes it's not even just to be present for someone else. It's to be present for yourself and to feel like inside of yourself, what is it that I'm feeling right now? Going back to my emotional equations book, you know, like sometimes our challenge is we feel mixed emotions partly because we're feeling so many things at once, but we're not slowing down enough to really understand underneath all that what is it that's the predominant emotion. So I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that we can learn as humans is that um, being able to be present is one of the things that, that young people have really appreciated in me is because it's something that they would like to have more of in their own life. Yeah, and and I know because I have a son who's 37 and is at working at Mozilla and prior Amazon, and he always comments, you know, he got chronic myelogenous leukemia at 21. Mm. And he sees the f speed at which the people around him are moving. And I have to admit that that experience in his life really shifted uh, his whole perspective, um, just like I'm sure your experience here with prostate cancer will shift your perspective about what's important. And one of the things that's important here is that you're helping Airbnb become a hospitality company, which is certainly different from the model that they kind of first started with. 
You state in the book that moving people from ignore to win wasn't going to be easy. So our attitude better be hospitable. How have you tapped your wisdom and your elder experience to let Brian, one of the founders and his team, see the value in the new model? Well, I think, um, and, and that quote, you, you had part of the quote, the Gandhi quote of, uh, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then they win, <laughs> and then you win. Um, and so I was truly trying to help people to understand that uh, that's, this, that's the sort of cycle of how we're going to have relationships with many uh, groups out there that might oppose Airbnb. I think that, you know, the thing that's interesting about wisdom to me is it's, it, uh, I would define it as good judgment based upon pattern recognition within, within perfect alchemy of confidence and doubt. And those are three different components. And in terms of like, how did the wisdom show up? I think it was those three components. Uh, first one, let's start with the last one first, a piece of that, the confidence and doubt. Many young people in companies like Airbnb, especially if they're very successful, and especially if you, if this is the only job you've ever had out of college or you know, the three founders being entrepreneurs starting this place but never having run a business before, it's really easy to get a lot of hubris to really feel like somehow, you know, everything you do, everything you touch is, turns to gold. And so I think one of the things that I, I find about people who are wise is they have a, a nice mixture of confidence and doubt. They may have a certain confidence in certain parts of their life, but a certain doubt in other parts. And they know when they should actually um, show one versus the other. To me, that's part of wisdom. Um, it's part of the reason why I think the founders appreciated me because, you know, one of the things that I think people do is they move from hubris to humility over the course of their adulthood. Then right before that in my, in my uh, definition of wisdom is the idea of pattern recognition. So I think pattern recognition helps your intuition to understand whether, whether what you're seeing here today, you've learned from a past lesson. And um, pattern recognition, the more, the more time you spent on earth, the more patterns you've seen. So pattern recognition actually favors someone who's been around a little bit longer. And then the first part of the, the definition of wisdom I just gave you was good judgment. So good judgment based upon pattern recognition with uh, you know perfect alchemy of confidence and doubt. The good judgment is something that actually comes from this confidence and wisdom and the kind of recognition. And frankly, good judgment often comes from bad judgment of the past. So, mm -hmm. you know, my, my skinned knee from, you know, just metaphorically from 20 years ago might help Brian today because I have actually, I was a, for 24 years, a CEO of a company I founded. And so I learned a lot of lessons along the way. And so Brian was really had a huge appetite for growth. There's a beautiful book by Carol Dweck called Mindset. And Mindset, you know, you can have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. Brian had a very growth mindset. So his approach was, I want to learn from people who've been around longer than I have. And what a beautiful thought. Like, wow, there are people who've been around a long time. I'm going to learn from them. And I think the part that made it really interesting in terms of the uh, the relationship I created with Brian was that I realized I had a lot to learn from him as well. And I think mm -hmm. a modern elder is as much an intern as they're a mentor. And that's the big difference between so the modern version of an elder versus the traditional version of the elder. The traditional version of the elder was regarded with reverence. But I think the modern elders appreciated for their relevance. And relevance requires you to have 
um, an openness to learning, a curiosity, and a beginner's mind. That in my case, in the tech company, you know, in my 50s for the first time, I had to have this perspective that I was here to learn. Well, I mean, I I know for a fact that the eldership that's going on, and I should say the mentorship that you're providing to the teams at Airbnb is certainly helping to form um, a new company, a new culture. Um, And I just want to acknowledge you for that. And thank you. You know, I appreciate this quote from Rumi. You said in the book, my life may be summed up in three phases. I was raw. I became cooked. Then I burned. You mentioned that today for the first time, we are seeing the power of intergenerational transfer of wisdom that flows in both directions, which you were just talking about. And that this offers the elder the opportunity to be raw again, to be receptive, to learn in a new way. Um, How has being the mentor or the elder at Airbnb team allowed you for you to learn and be raw in new ways. Yeah, the, and the, the uh, yes, it was 750 years ago that Rumi wrote that, and and in, in essence, he was defining our what has historically been called our three-stage life. We learn till our 25, till we're 20 or 25. We earn till we're 65, and then we retire till we die. That model, which you know, in many ways, helped define how you and I were going to you know live our lives. In some ways, it's evaporating. The millennials certainly don't necessarily believe in it. And there's an element of like lifelong learning is something we continue to do. So I think for me, what all of this has helped me to do is to realize that um, raw, cooked, burned, repeat. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can go back and be raw again, meaning young and le- learning driven uh, at any age of your life. Uh, Peter Drucker was one of the most famous management theorists of all time. He lived till age 95. And one of the things that really was striking about him is every couple of years, he'd pick up a new subject that he wanted to learn it that had nothing to do with being a business professor or author or management theorist. And he'd become one of the world's leading experts in it. And I think that that sort of sense of curiosity, that willingness to sort of see curiosity as a life-affirming elixir for both yourself and everyone around you is something that people have learned from me here. I mean, here I'm 58 years old almost, and people are saying, you're just the most curious person in the building. And uh, recently I was talking to an executive recruiter and she said, you know, I was asked her the following question. I said, I talk with a lot of people who actually are in their 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, who just are scared by the fact that, um, that that recruiters or companies don't really want to hire them at this age. And she said, the number one thing I tell people who are older is the following. If you come across as curious and passionately engaged in life and in your interest in learning, your wrinkles will start to evaporate in the eyes of the person interviewing you. And I think that's really, really true. I think that there's an element that when we start to actually feel the energy of another person and feel that passion and that curiosity, you actually forget about the fact that the person might be 20 years older than you. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. that has been one of, one of the beautiful things about me at Airbnb is that I, when it comes to my energy, it's pretty much the same as everybody else. Now you could say, well, that's, you're just an unusual case, Chip. But I, I like, we think of people we know who are in their 70s or 80s, maybe even in their 90s, who are just very open to learning 
and open to having energy come through them. Yes, our physical body may not be what it used to be, but our emotional body may be more formed and mature and more, um, you know, sort of alive than it's ever been. I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things is at, at whatever age, when you get into, like I'm 64, you're a lot more reflective. So those reflections allow you that. I mean, I just did an interview on a book called The Expertise Economy, Kathy Palmer with Degreed. And, you know, long gone are the days of the four-year degree that it's going to help you just, you know, make your way up the ladder. Um, if you're not a continual learner, as you just mentioned, um, you're, you really have some challenges. And you have four lessons um, that you teach in the book. And the first is to evolve. You mm -hmm. start this chapter with a great story of you taking a hike with your father in a mountain uh -huh. not far from Silicon yeah. Valley. And yeah. right after, you know, right after you had joined Airbnb, you stated that hiking the mountain felt like you had a 180 pound pack on your back and, and you needed to leave your old historical wardrobe behind. And I know what you're talking yeah. about here. You're saying all uh -huh. the history from the hospitality business and, you know, your, your challenges with your health, and the, the failure of some of the things that went on there. Then then you are focused on the historical wardrobe. You say when you're focused on the historical wardrobe, rather than the person inside uh, those clothes, you lose track of the authentic and special gifts you have to offer. How would you advise people to lose the old historical wardrobe? Thanks for that question. I honestly, that's probably the most important part of my book. It's the, the first lesson of Evolve. And it's be, partly because when people are in midlife, uh, often it's almost like they've been just putting name tag stickers on, on their, on the front of their shirt or, and they just like, they have 10 different identities and, and they're not taking any of them off. And so it's just, a, it's a combination of things that are weighing them down. And it's not just the identities. It's also the knowledge. Um, so it wasn't like I, I had to get rid of all of it. It's just like I needed to sort of like slip out of those things, out of that costume and into something, you know, a little bit less weighty, something that allowed me to, to try something new. So for the specifics on that, um, I joined Airbnb and I had been CEO of my own company for 24 years. And uh, now I'm going to be the, you know, I'm going to be reporting to Brian, who's 21 years younger than me, while also being his mentor. That's an unusual situation. Um, and if I had sort of like attached myself to my historical identity of I'm the CEO in charge, uh, that wouldn't have worked well. So I had to really right size my ego to be more comfortable with the fact that I was no longer the sage on the stage, but I was now the guide on the side. Um, and so that was that was one thing I had to do from an identity perspective. From a knowledge perspective, I had to realize, yes, much of the knowledge that I have had and accumulated over time around hotels wasn't all that valuable in the home sharing world. doesn't really matter how many rooms a maid can clean in an eight-hour shift. That, and for someone with a cottage in their backyard, they're not going to have a maid doing the cleaning of after someone checks out. They're going to do it themselves. So I had to really put some of my knowledge aside as well. So what we realize is that when, when we're able to start to um, edit our lives in such a way that we're focused on what's essential and important, it actually gives us some streamlining. And this is really, I think, the truth of the difference between the first half of our life and the second half. 
Carl Jung wrote beautiful books on this idea, but he never put it in exactly this way. But I think the first half of our life is about accumulating. And the second half of our life is about editing. And what I mean by that is we see many people uh, after age, say, 45 or 50, whether they have, they're an empty nester and they decide, okay, I'm going to downsize. I don't need the four-bedroom home anymore. Or um, there's a bunch of people I've spent time with most of my adulthood, but I don't, actually don't really love spending time with them. So I'm going to spend more time with the people I care more about in my family and who are friends. Um, yes, there's a bunch of things I want to learn now, but there's a bunch of things I, yeah, I'm still on for nonprofit boards or I'm involved in volunteering for some things that don't mean as much to me as they used to. So you have to edit that as well. If you just are constantly in the accumulation stage without editing what's essential to you, it will weigh you down. And if you're weighed down, it, you don't, you're not really in a space to make that hike up the mountain. And, and, and for Mike, in my case, the metaphorical hike of the mountain was learning how to understand the technology business and what home sharing was about. And you know, what are the millennial travel habits? Um, because that was our core customer when I first joined. Now it's very much the mainstream. But um, all of those things required me to let go of some of my historical knowledge and identity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've done a great job of, of doing that and letting go of that historical baggage, as you call it. And your second lesson, because there's four of them here, is learn. You state that being in the midst of a career transition can create confusion, a liminal state. I know a lot of people just get you know, they, they basically go into the fear mode and they just stop doing anything. What would you tell the listeners about diving in and learning and reducing that fear that immobilizes them and the uncertainty that they might be feeling? Well, um, this is one of the things we do at, at my modern elder academy uh, down in Mexico, uh, which is a social enterprise where 50% of people come on scholarship, is we help people in midlife go through transition. And the thing that's so interesting is that we know that we have transitions throughout, you know, throughout our lives, and yet we are, we're almost invisible to some of these transitions in midlife, or at least in terms of providing some kind of social or societal support for whether it's going through a divorce or having parents pass away or having, frankly, a spouse pass away, uh, you know, uh, moving to a new geographic location, having the empty nest syndrome happen, um, going through menopause or for men, andropause. Um, so all of these things happen, and, and yet when, when you're going to transition, the word liminal is a word I didn't know until I'd written the book, but liminal basically means you're in limbo. You're in a limbo, liminal state, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. But if you start to realize that on the other side of this liminal state, of this transition, is something that could be quite positive, then going through a transition like puberty is something that you can accept and know that on the other side, you'll be on the way to being an adult. Unfortunately, we've made elderhood or our older years feel like they're full of decrepitude. And the truth, the truth is we don't really get to a place where we're physically infirmed and needing societal support in a substantial way for most of us until we're in our 80s. Um, and, uh, you know, again, there are specific physical health situations that could, you know, in an individual's case that could be different than that. But by and large, the average person is very independent until, you know, most people are their 80s. And if that's the case, then we have a lot to look forward to, you know, after we go through some midlife transitions. You know, if, if, if you're, I'm 57, I turn 58 later this month. But if I do the math and forgetting about my 
my uh, recent prostate uh, cancer diagnosis that I just had, which you know I'll get through. The the fact is that online sites, when I ask they ask all these questions about how old I'm going to live to, um, on average they say about age 98. Now if I do the math and say, gosh, I, if my life adult life started at age 18 and I'm 57 now, I'm less than halfway through my adult life. That's amazing, mm-hmm. and that makes you realize, my gosh. I can, I'm more willing to try new things when I realize that half of my adult life is ahead of me. And that's a, a critical part of the book and a critical part of having people understand that going through transition and going through feeling that awkwardness that you can sometimes feel as a, as a, pub, uh, a pubescent teen is okay in midlife as well, as long as we have a little bit of a sense of humor and we can talk about it with people. Yeah, and I think that uh, you have certainly the opportunity, everybody does at at these ages, let's say elder ages, whatever you want to call that beginning. I still don't feel like I'm in those elder ages. So I think that's a great thing. And I think it's also, too, a lot of how you do the spiritual, the mental, emotional health, uh, and you take care of that. Uh, You got to take care of the physical being along the way. And that's a that's a big part of it. Um, you cite a great story at the beginning of the chapter on collaborate. That's your lesson three about this meeting with one of the older programmers. We say older. He was in his 50s uh, within Airbnb. And you asked him to join the internal wisdom at Airbnb affinity group of employers, primarily for people age 40. If you would, because I found the story kind of interesting, articulate why collaboration is so important across generational, and I'm going to call it self-imposed. I think we create these boundaries uh, mm-hmm. between generations uh, to keep communication flowing. So articulate why collaboration is so important across generational self-imposed boundaries. Well, you know, it's funny going to a tech company. I, I had this impression that everybody would be just have their head down and there'd be no, there'd be no teams. And frankly, it'd be like all these individual contributors just going and being geniuses by themselves. Well, no. In fact, most companies, most organizations are full of teams, including tech companies. And therefore, teams need to collaborate. If, if, you know, and what I saw very early in my time here is like, wow. Um, you get a bunch of 25-year-old men in a room together who are young and smart, and they're all going to try to compete with each other, and that's what was going on. So w- there's a ton of evidence. Uh, Google, Google did a study that showed that their most effective teams in the world uh, created psychological safety for people who, uh, who in the room felt less inclined to actually participate. Um, and you know, so the key thing to know is that collaboration is – you know, and, and, and organizational work is a team sport. And therefore, um, who has learned how to collaborate better? Well, frankly, women are better at, at than men on average, and older people are better at than younger people on average. And why is that? It's partly because they, um, they've known what it means to be the other. In the case of a woman, quite often they've been the ones who sort of had to be the minority in a group in, in an organizational way. Um, for older people, frankly, it's, it's so much of it has to do with just learning how to um, manage our emotions over time. Uh, part of the reason emotional intelligence does grow with time in the average person is because we are less temperamental uh, and we are less, you know, sort of the slave of our amygdala, that part of our brain that has a tendency to have us react. 
And so all of that actually means that we have something to bring to the workplace. And this particular uh, engineer in the company, who was 53 years old, who, who did not want me to out him about his age um, in the company, was, you know, one of the best. He, he created a lot of what I call invisible productivity. He helped everybody around him and the teams he was on be more effective. And I think this is a new way for us to think through and look at um, how do companies look at their star performance performers, not just the individual contributors who may be a genius but can't get along with people, but also the person who actually creates invisible productivity for everybody around them. Yeah, it was a it was a wonderful story, and his resistance toward being part of that that group. Uh, but I think the most important point you make was collaboration. Now, you obviously been a, a great mentor, as you said, to over a hundred employees at Airbnb, and you tell a story about Jessica Seaman that exemplifies why companies should want an elder on their team. If you would, for a minute, uh, impart your story about Jessica and how she helped you create the first Airbnb open, and then she chose to move on to create her own company called Passion Company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and ultimately, then it became a psychotherapist, which is what she's training in now. Um, well, so, so Jessica was some, one of those people who, um, in fact, many people would look at her like, oh, she's a millennial who's entitled. She wants to be, she wants to be, you know, Mark Zuckerberg someday. Well, you know, the, the truth is when people say all these millennials have such high ambitions, you know, back in our day, Greg, we didn't have people become billionaires by the time they were 25 or by, by starting companies. You know, it's a whole different era. So yes, the expectations are higher. And in the case of Jessica, she'd gone to Stanford Business School. She was really smart, but she did not get along with her boss. Her boss didn't treat her well. And so she was going to leave the company. And instead, I asked her to help me uh, create this first ever um, global host conference and festival called the Airbnb Open that we did for three years. And ultimately, what I was able to do is tap into what, what Jessica was best at. And I think that, you know, the the best leaders out there are leaders who ask the question, how can I support you to do your best work of your life here at and fill in the blank wherever you're working? That question is the kind of question I asked Jessica. And I, and she, I knew that what she wanted to do was she wanted to do something that was more creative and something that gave her the ability to be more of an entrepreneur as opposed to feeling like her boss who was saying, here's what I want you to do this week. And then the next week, here's what I want you to do. So it's almost like she was working on an assembly line. Um, and so long story short is I think that our job as leaders is to help see people for what they can do best, but actually ask the question. The reason I love that question, how can I support you to do your best work of your life here at, at in my case at Airbnb, was it says that I support them. First of all, they know that. I'm not here to actually try to figure out how to fire them. Number two, though, and this is a really important piece, is it puts the responsibility in their lap to tell me what it is that we need to do to create a better workplace, uh, whether it's resources they need or more time with me or you know new, new additional tools that they need. What is it that we can do to make it better? And in essence, it puts some agency in their lap as opposed to having them to be the victim saying, I hate my job, you know, they don't listen to me or you know, it's, it's impossible to work there. Yeah, and, and her story was great, and I, I'm glad that you used that. I was going to just let my listeners know that Chip has put in some wonderful stories that have been weaved in here um, to tell 
not only his journey at Airbnb, but his own personal journey as well. And I'd like to wrap up our interview with this question. Um, you and I have a, a good friend and author, Ken Blanchard, and he has a book out there, Refire, Don't Retire. And you right. have a chapter on Rewire, Don't Retire. And you tell the story of shifting your perspective as an elder. What advice would you give the listening audience out there today about why they should rewire and not retire? Well, I, let me say that if someone wants to retire, it's perfectly fine for them. But I think that there, are, there is evidence that actually when people do retire really early, it, it actually creates some health risks um, for a variety of reasons. And uh, I, that's so surprising because you think it would just maybe less stressed out. But no, in fact, for many people, they feel less, less passionate about life. Um, I, I, I believe that, you know, we, we have so much life that we could have on this planet. Why not later in life try and explore things, some things that you might not have done otherwise? It could be the passion. It could be like, like a hobby you've always enjoyed. Like, you know, maybe it's writing children's books and you can self-publish children book, children's books and figure out how you do that because you've always loved that. So great, do it. I mean, or start a company. In fact, the fastest growing uh, age demographic for starting companies today is people 50 and older. And it's partly because they don't want to go work for anybody anymore. Um, it, it could be giving back to a nonprofit in a social enterprise kind of way. Um, there's so many different ways that we can actually look at how we mine our mastery to figure out what we've done well and then apply it in new ways. And, you know, why not do that when we're going to live probably 10 or 15 years longer than our parents did? As you state, probably into our 90s, which uh, yeah. my mom lived to 93. So I look at it and I go, okay, I got decent uh, genes. You here. might hit the three. You may, you may hit the three, the three digits, Greg. You, <laughs> may, you, may, you might make up to 100. I, I could. So uh, for my listeners, we've been on with Chip Conley. The book is called Wisdom at Work. We'll have links to Amazon for that as well as to Chip's website. Chip Conley, C-H-I-P-C-O-N-L-E-Y.com uh, is where you can go to learn more about Chip. Uh, this book is about the making of a modern elder. I can highly recommend this across all age groups. This book isn't just, you know, for elders. It's for any person who wants to learn what it's like, I would say, to be a mentor. And I think as Chip uh, stated in our interview here, it goes both directions. You know, I've worked with younger people, um, which most of us have, which have taught us a tremendous amount um, about not only their business, but about how to look at life. And I have to admit, Chip, I've learned as much from the millennials as they've taught me. So I appreciate yep. that perspective. Um, again, the, the website is Chip Connolly. Dot com. Check it out, Wisdom at Work. Um, and you also will be able to link to Chip's book. Thanks for being on uh, Inside Personal Greg. Growth. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely.